So, I'm going to be all over the place today, but I'm going to be in Ephesians most of all. Uh, I will go to Ephesians a great deal. So, if you have a Bible, you open to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, you park it there, That's I'm going to be dodging around all over the Bible. Woo, there you go, you guys are awake. Uh, but also all over Ephesians. So, uh, Thursday was Ascension Day. This is uh, in the church calendar what they typically call Ascension Sunday. What is that? Who cares? That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I am going to do a first and second Samuel series, but that starts in September. So I'm going to just be all over the map all summer. Um, if I read a book and I want to preach about it, I'll do it. If uh, I notice a particular thing going on and I see it all over the place, I'm going to talk about that. But today I'm going to talk about King Jesus, and so let us pray to him. Father God, we thank you that you are uh, not a God who is unconcerned with this world and what we have done to it, but that you are eminently and passionately and zealously, personally interested in every one of us, in every person that has ever lived, in every circumstance of human history. We know that you are the Lord that you are the king. And we pray, God, as we open your word and we look at what that really means, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive new truth, new understanding, new passion, new zeal, that we might go and honor you and glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, why is the ascension important? It's a word that after I say it actually a few times, it's one of those words that seems to have no meaning for me. Ascension. Ascension. It's one of those... Have you ever had that happen where you say a word a bunch of times? I say it so many times in the sermon that after a while it's, I, I kind of giggled at myself, so I'm sorry about that. It is an event that appears to be little more than a footnote in Luke and Acts. The birth and the resurrection of Jesus seem to be far more important. I mean, we have Christmas, we have Easter. Those events seem to be uh, the, the key events in Jesus' life. With all the miracles of Jesus, why does the ascension need any special attention at all? I mean, Jesus just gets on a cloud, like it's an elevator, pushes the penthouse suite, and up he goes. And generally, we consider it as this device that just lets us know that Jesus didn't stay here. Uh, And and usually that's how we think about it, and then we move on. But at the incarnation, Jesus entered a two-phase plan to reveal the triune God as the Lord of heaven and earth. Two-phase plan. He, wanted, he didn't come to earn anything, Jesus. He came to reveal something. He came to reveal that the triune God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He didn't, come to be, he didn't come to earth to become those things. He came to earth to reveal those things. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, you actually see this two-phase plan. Paul explains it for us. The two-phase plan of Jesus was to first be utterly humiliated and then be exalted. That was his plan. And this is what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee 
should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And everyone, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the two-phase plan. Go, son, into the world and get as humiliated as any person who's ever been. And if you do that unto death, I will exalt you higher than anyone has ever been exalted. That, and Jesus said, That's, that sounds like a good plan, Dad. I will go and I will do that. The exaltation phase consists of the resurrection and the ascension and something that we're not as familiar with called the session of Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to look at today is the ascension and session. The ascension and session. What are these things and who cares? Well, in a nutshell, what they are is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. This is what we're going to be talking about today. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What is it? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet. That's what we're going to be talking about today. The ascension is not simply an aside. The ascension is the beginning of Christ's return to heaven to receive all the glory and authority and power and, and, and to show his father what he had accomplished so that Jesus might take his seat at the right hand of the father and rule and reign the cosmos for eternity. Now, that's what we're going to get into. But to understand the church calendar for a moment, I'm just going to have an aside here for a second. The church calendar is something that most modern evangelicals are not familiar with in any way. Now, at the Reformation, uh, the Protestant church dispensed with this extraordinarily complicated calendar of saints' days and the feasts and masses associated with them. If you don't know, the Roman Catholics used to have this calendar. It was color-coded. Uh, every day it had at least 10 different saints that you could worship and offer masses to and appeal to. Uh, and you prayed to those saints on those days. It was this very complicated calendar. And the reformers were like, "Get what, what is this? Right? You, the church is obsessed with itself. Get this out of here. But, but partially because they had grown up and they were so used to celebrating things throughout the year, what they did is they replaced all of that nonsense. I'm sorry, yes, nonsense. Okay, St. Patrick's Day is okay, but that's just because I can drink green beer. All the other saints' days are nonsense. They replaced it with what they call the six evangelical feast days. Now, these are the six, day, six feast days that are, ha, are, what they do is they, they took the life of Jesus and the key events, and they made those the feasts. So the whole devotional church calendar uh, it, um, is focused on the life of Jesus. And, and in the life of Jesus, you get the life of Israel. And so as you're going, you celebrate, you know, you get Advent and Christmas and Epiphany. And, and this is what you're celebrating, not some random saints, but Jesus. But it's important, our Puritan bona fides here, that we understand that Sunday is a holiday every week. Every Sunday is Christmas. Every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday is Ascension Day. Every Sunday is a holiday in which we lift up and glorify and sing and praise Jesus in every aspect of his life and ministry. But it is important to shape our, I mean, it can be very helpful to shape our year around these events in Jesus's life just to give our devotions and give us something to think about as we're going about our work, right? I mean, you should see my kids, like, Christmas, when they, they get excited about it. It's the thing they talk about, and they're, 
and it just gets them right into the details of the story, right? And most of us are this way. We love these holidays, but there's a lot more of them, is my point, than Christmas and Easter. And one of them is Ascension Day. So 40 days after Easter Sunday, it's always 40 days after Easter Sunday, and it lands on, on Thursday, was it the Ascension Day. And this is what it commemorates, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. See, that's, it just mentions it offhand. Just this little thing. Oh, by the way, he went back to heaven. But repeatedly, Jesus predicted his own ascension and session. He was constantly talking about it. In Mark fourteen sixty two, it says, And Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is a phrase that he repeats again and again and again throughout the Gospels. He was looking forward to the ascension in session because he understood that if he was successful in his mission, that was going to be the, the point where God began to pour out upon Jesus all the glory and blessings that he had, a, had acquired by being obedient unto death. He set his mind on the joy set before him, it says. And the joy that was set before him was getting out of here and getting back to the Father and going back to the Father. And, and you know, when I was first a Christian, I, these things are so strange. I just, I mean, if you really think about it, Jesus goes back to heaven and what is the Father doing? I mean, is he just on the back porch flipping burgers, hears something in the house? He's like, oh, son, you returned. Come on out here and have a chat. I mean, like, I always imagine, like, the way we underdo Ascension Day is like Jesus just headed on up to heaven and the Father was like, oh, I'm glad you're back. And then they went about their business. Like, no, imagine you send your son on this mission <laughs> to destroy the kingdom of darkness, to conquer the world. And, and upon his return, what kind of party do you think God the Father, right, who can tell stars to dance, uh, what kind of party do you think he held when his son came home? There's a reason Jesus was always talking about it, because he was the one who had to deal with all of the, all the nonsense of man. He had to deal with all the, the wickedness and rebellion and brokenness. He wanted to go back to the Father, and he talked about it a lot. Now, the importance of the ascension is the fact that Jesus returned to his Father in heaven. He didn't just go back to heaven. He went back to his Father. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. It is recorded that after Jesus had spoken unto his disciples, he was received up into heaven. And that's the important word there, received. Well, who received him? The Father received him. Now, Jesus' favorite designation for himself was the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a mysterious character from Daniel chapter 7 who was received into heaven as the, as the king. This is Daniel's vision. Okay? This is, Jesus always called himself the Son of Man. And when he did that, this is what he was thinking of. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Christ's mind was always on heaven. He was always looking forward to this moment where he is successful and he gets back to the Father and they have this, this enthronement and where they delight in what they have accomplished. The reason that Jesus accomplished so much on this earth is because his mind was always on heaven. 
That's what we're going to see. He's constantly thinking about the Father. He's constantly thinking about the reward, the joy. He's constantly thinking about all the people that get to go with him. He's constantly thinking about the Father and this return to heaven. And, and, it's, and it's what gives him um, the zeal to do the things that he did on this earth. He looked beyond this earth to heaven. Because this is exactly what Jesus went on to do. He is the Son of Man. Jesus fulfilled all the messianic types and shadows. He is the amen to God's promise of an eternal king. For those struggling against Satan and sin and death, it is paramount to the ministry of the apostles in, their, in the word of God to teach that Christ had returned to God the Father in heaven. They talk about it all the time. They're constantly reminding them, Jesus went back to heaven. Jesus went back to heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He, where is he? He's at the right hand of the power on high. They're constantly talking this way because it's, it's paramount that we understand as we are struggling along against sin, Satan, and death that our Lord and King is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Where is he now? In heaven, ruling and reigning. Now, how often in, a, in a, any given week do you need to remind yourself of that truth? Well, this looks pretty bad. But, uh, you know, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God, so it's going to be okay. And, and, right, for me, this is what I'm, I'm constantly having to remind myself, right? Here I am in this place. I'm not looking here. I'm just saying I'm out in the world, and I'm seeing all the nasty stuff. I'm sitting there in a counseling session, and I'm hearing the horrible things that are going on. And all I've got, I just got to keep reminding myself that there is a Lord in heaven, and he is at the right hand of the power. And, and this is the thing the apostles are always talking about. This is why Ascension Sunday is so important. Jesus looked forward to it. He kept his eyes on it. He accomplished it. And because he accomplished it, he's there now ruling and reigning. What you see going on in this world is not random. And there is not a God of this earth that is Satan who's in charge of anything. Right? The Lord Jesus came and he took this planet by force. And he, took, he plundered the strong man's house, and it is his now. And, and we know that because the Father glorified him and gave him the authority over the heavens and the earth because of what Jesus had accomplished. The ascension was Christ's entry into glory, which he obtained in heaven after completing his earthly ministry here. Now, Christ's present role in glory is referred to as his heavenly session. Session means sitting. And sometimes when you think about that, you're like, wait, wait, I, wanna, I don't want a, a king that's sitting down. I want a king that has his armor on. Right? This is the problem Israel had. I, I don't want a king that's sitting at, at meals with tax collectors. I want, a, I want a king who's on his horse with his sword out charging down the enemy. The, the idea of Jesus sitting around, you know, does it, for me, sometimes I'm like, well, can you get up and can you do something? But what does this idea of, of, of him sitting mean? Uh, it's, it's strange. It's like when we talk about things being in session, we even use that word. We don't even really understand what we're talking about. Now, the body of elders in a Presbyterian church are called the session. And the reason they're called the session is they are the men from time to time, uh, because there are important things going down, have to sit down and talk about it. So they, they start to refer to the, the elders as the session because they have to sit in session and discuss what's going on in the church and decide what to do about it. What I find funny is people often talk about the fact that Congress is in session. And I don't think anybody ever thinks about what that means. But the reason you say Congress is in session is because, unfortunately, they're there in the Capitol sitting and making decisions about laws and rules 
and then in the direction of the nation. So this is the idea of a session is somebody who isn't just sitting around with like a little drink and an umbrella having a good time. It's somebody who's sitting down who's administrating their authority. That's what Congress is doing when it's in session. That's what the elders are doing when they're, the session is together. Now we go, this idea comes from Psalm 110, and that was read for us this morning. The idea that the Messiah would sit, be, be sat down at the right hand of God the Father as a king and a priest, as king to see all his enemies under his feet, and as a priest to serve God and channel God's grace forever. You see, in Psalm 110, you see this dual idea. He's sitting down as the king to rule until all of his enemies are brought to him and laid down upon his feet. Not just you know at his feet, but under his feet. Now, and this is a very odd idea, too. We live in a very different kind of culture. But, but back then, if you would go out and defeat large armies, they would fetch the kings, and they'd bring them before you, and you were the king, you would go out, and you would just put your foot right on their neck. And you would just stand there like that for a minute, and everyone can see who's the big dog, right? Who's the winner? Ooh. Yes, Jesus does that. He wants his enemies dragged into the throne room so he can put his foot on their neck. Now, that's... Ooh. Right? We don't, we, we want, that's a little, it's hard for us to hear. But that's the language we're talking about here. Right? We, we get confused because Jesus came as a man, but he is God. Right? He, he is fighting. Now, we, we get all confused because we don't understand the way that he fights. Um, and, and because of the way he fights, either we don't understand that he is fighting and it's not martial, it's not warlike language, it makes some people very uncomfortable. But we also, there's those who, because it's warlike language and it's martial, we get the complete wrong idea. But, but Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are dragged in so he can step on their throat. Use them as a footstool. And there is, you know, in, in the book of Kings, there is one king who defeats all of his enemies and he cuts off their thumbs and they actually crawl around under the table cleaning up scraps. Uh, and that, that's the idea in one sense, of what Jesus is doing. And, and I think Christians need to hear that. I think Christians need to hear that. Now, the apostles understood Psalm 110. They understood the martial element to all of this. They understood that there is a king who really is destroying other kings, other kingdoms. And you see it all over the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens. He didn't. He himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter talks about it again and again and again. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Matthew twenty-two forty-four. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And we like to dress that up as metaphorical language and not really think about what it really means. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. Many Christians live as if they are still waiting for the revelation of the Messiah. They're acting as if they're still waiting for Jesus to begin ruling and reigning because this world just seems chaotic. This world seems full of darkness. They're waiting for Jesus to get up and do something. They don't realize he's already done it. They don't realize that he's sitting there in session, the court is in session, and he is, is working and moving in this world until all of his enemies are dragged in and placed under his feet. 
the influence of dualism and premillennialism caused many to view the world pessimistically and yearn for some power, some power that will rise up over the darkness in this world to deliver the people of God from the God of this world, Satan, who still in a lot of our minds rules and reigns. As if Israel is still in Egypt making bricks without straw. We do not understand that Jesus is the king. There's no king but Jesus. None. And if he's the king of kings, he's the emperor. If he's the God of gods, there's no God higher than him. There's no king higher than him. There's no authority higher than him. Not you, not me, not the president, not the governor, right? Congress can sit in session as long as it wants. It still doesn't have as much authority as Jesus sitting in his session. And this is something that we all need to be reminded of, I think, all the time. It's thrilling to think of Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, why? Because right here, here I am offending everyone, talking about dragging people in and stepping on their throats. But right, if, if you have someone who has the sword, someone who's going to be ruling and reigning and distributing justice, the, the reason that we, we, we can be comfortable with the martial part of it is because we have the Gospels. And you see that this is no ordinary king. This is a man who makes decisions that are truly right, righteous, truly gracious, truly compassionate, truly full of understanding. No one ever taught like him. No one ever loved like him. And yes, please put the crown on that man's head. That is what we should, right? We get to it and we're like, yes, please, Acts, send this man back to heaven so he can rule over us, please. We can't forget that he's gone back and done it, but we have to remember who it is and what kind of person he is, what kind of God he is. Now, what does this mean for you and I? Right? I mean, I, I'm te- there's a lot of confusion for me, right? If he's the king, what, what, right? If, he, if he's the one who's taken away all the tears, if he's the one who's taken away and crushed Satan's sin and death, why do I have to struggle against Satan? Why do I have to struggle against sin? And why am I going to die? Is he the king or not? But... Did he come like they thought he was going to come? The Jews, when he came, were they like, oh, yeah, it's Jesus. It's Jesus the Lord. <laughs> Let's give him the scepter and let him rule. They were like, no, I don't. what is this? I don't want anything to do with this guy. And as he's ruling, right, as he's doing his ministry, uh, he goes all the way and, and then he dies. He's arrested. And his, all of his fathers are like, I don't want any part of this. This is crazy. I'm out of here. And they run away. And through a cross, he defeats his enemies. Now, that kind of God, how do you think his rule and reign, once he ascends to the heavens, what do you think it's going to look like? It's going to look like what we don't, we're not expecting. Because the Jews are waiting for a Messiah to set everything straight. There's one big resurrection. Everything goes on forever on this earth. No pain, no sorrow. But that's, right, Jesus proves he's anything but what we expect. Right? And I want, right, just like the Jews wanted Jesus to start crushing some Roman heads, Oftentimes, we're like, well, we got Jesus in heaven. Why do we have to put up with anything? Why doesn't he just defeat everybody? Why do I have to have any pain? Why do I have to have any suffering? Why are there enemies? Because his rule, is, <laughs> his rule, his session is just as paradoxical, just as confusing to us as his resurrection was, as his incarnation was, as his ministry was. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. 
He ascends into heaven. The point is to attain the glory and the, and the authority that the Father had promised to him. And this is what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. This is what it says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, now they're going to refer back to the gifts that were given. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So he ascends into heaven. He's got in tow all all behind him, all the captives he's brought back. And then what he does is he begins to distribute gifts. Now this is an old idea. This is uh, Abraham dealt with this, right? They go. Abraham goes to war. Uh, he leaves his 300 and some odd guys out to battle, and they defeat all the enemy, and they take all the plunder, and then he's got to give the plunder to everybody who risked their lives to fight. This is what this is what kings do, generals, marshals. They go out and they whoop up, they take all the plunder, and then they distribute the plunder to all of their followers. Now, have you ever thought of Jesus doing that on Ascension Day? He who descended, ascended. And what did he do? He led all of his captives behind him, and then he began to distribute gifts as if, <laughs> as if he's the greatest legionnaire of all time. And his largesse is quite extraordinary. And what does he give? Does he give spears and horses and shields and chariots? No, he gives preachers. I'm sorry. And evangelists. Right? And the church is like, yeah, our guy's in the throne now. He's going to give us some gifts. He gives us an evangelist that is like, what? Going to go to Africa and be killed by? Wait, what kind of gifts are these? Can I give them back? Right? We want, no, I want, where's the, where's the golden road? Where's the house with, you know, where's the palace with my name on it? We want those gifts now, but, you know, he didn't get those gifts until he went back to heaven. What did he have to do to get there? He got a crown, but what came before it? Right? He didn't do all of this so that we don't have to do it. He did all of this so that we can, just like him. You want a crown? Here's a cross. You want, you want, <laughs> you want a golden palace in heaven? Here's an evangelist to teach you the work of ministry. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm doing that right now in my own heart. I'm like, is that seriously? That's what you're going to give me? Spurgeon? That's my gift? I mean, Jesus does own all of Africa. Can I get a nice beach spot somewhere that I can rule the reign over? No. No. Now I get Jonathan Edwards, which is really hard to even understand. The gifts of this king are very different because his kingdom is different. He He accomplished his throne very differently, and he sends us out to do exactly what he did. And he's taking care of everything in our way so that we can. Now, that is not what I signed up for when I first became a believer. If you would have explained it that way to me, I probably would have said no. Right? Because when we're first Christians, we just think, oh, whew, man, he's the king. I get a golden palace. I get, woo! I get a wife and kids. I get a great job, middle class America. This is, I love Christianity. It's amazing. 
And then a few years into it, right, I was, I, I don't know about you, I was 25 when I was converted. Once it slowly dawned on me what I was really called to do, it's like, okay, well, this is, uh, it's like I got to sit down and count the cost all over again. We are called to something very different because our king is very different. Now, Jesus became our redeemer not only to break prison bars of sin, not only to fling down hell's gates, but to come out of the prison of death. And as a trophy, he took up all his defeated enemies upon his back and carried them up into heaven with him, like Samson carrying the gates of the city. To lead captivity captive, to distribute gifts, the plunder he attained after defeating and and binding the strong man Satan. Martial cultures have generally commemorated victories with triumphal processions, as modern cultures do when we celebrate athletic or political victories. The Romans did this. It was called the Roman triumph. The general goes out, he defeats all the enemies, he gets all the slaves, he chains them by the neck, he puts all the plunder on wagons, and he starts in the outer districts, and they have this huge parade, and everyone throws flowers at, at his feet, and they literally, I've said this before, put a slave in the chariot with him, who every once in a while is supposed to just lean over and say, you are only a man, not a god. Because, because the uh, festivities were so glorious, the man might get a little confused you know, between the outer regions and the actual downtown portion of Rome. And, and this is, right, we, we don't really do things. I mean, we do this like when the Super Bowl champion wins, right? They get an open-top bus, and they hold the trophy, and they go downtown. Everyone acts like we just won World War III or something. I, I was in um, Paris in 1998, oddly enough, when, when France won the World Cup, and they hadn't done it in forever. And, and our teacher was like, yes, let's go to this parade. And it, it was the most people in France, or in Paris, since the liberation from the Nazis. Because so many people were excited about it. I was like, man, soccer is a big deal over here. The moment I realized it. And I remember that, I mean, this is the only time I've been to one of these. And the, there's the soccer team, and they have the trophy, and they're on this bus, and everyone's like, like lying down. And like, th- this is what, <laughs> this is something we're not really used to in our culture. Except in these kind of goofy ways. But in Rome... This, this was the culture that Paul was in um, when he's writing all of these things. And this is, this is what he uses to explain the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. Jesus ascended and led captive, captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Jesus' victory march begins with the ascension. And now I'm going to go on the skinny branches. But I like things, I like pictures, mental pictures. God is very tactile, I'm very tactile. I respond well when you write uh, uh, spiritual things are very kind of hard to understand. I need a physical image in my mind. And this is how now I think about all of this. It took Jesus until Pentecost, 10 days. He goes into heaven on Ascension Day. 10 days later, he gives the Spirit. Why did it take so long? Well, imagine Jesus in a chariot, a giant gold chariot, and all of his captives behind him, and all of the plunder. And he starts in the outer regions of heaven, and it takes him 10 days to cross heaven to get to the temple at the center of heaven. And there is a temple at the center of heaven. It's in fact shown to Moses, and it's shown to Solomon, and that's what they copy the tabernacle. That's where they get the copy for the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. So there is a physical temple in heaven. And every time that there's a new covenant, somebody's got to take the blood and put it on the horns of the altar, they call it. So imagine Jesus for 10 days riding through heaven, 
And everyone is singing and proclaiming his glory and his goodness. And he gets to the temple. And, and there's the father running to him, just like the father from the, the, the story. The prodigal, thank you. Thank you. And he hugs his son. And he receives the gift. And it's his own blood. And they go into the inner sanctuary together, into the inner, inner room, the Holy of Holies, and they, and they pour the blood out on the altar there. And as he's pouring it on the altar, the Spirit of God is descending on the church in the upper room. That's what I imagine now. And, and that, for me, is practically heresy. <laughs> but it just is a picture that helps me so much understand what is going on. Jesus did not just <laughs> go back to heaven, right? Knock on the door. Oh, Dad, I'm sorry, I forgot my keys, but I'm back. And then they just go about their business. That's not what happened. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have, have to, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He pours the blood on the altar, the spirit descends on the church, and there is the throne and Christ sits upon it. Victorious. Now Paul alludes to the grander story here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Listen to this. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they would have known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. Right? That's why they, right? Think about it. If they thought that killing Jesus wouldn't actually work, why would they do it? So this secret plan that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has had since before time began to go down, this is what Jesus has on his mind all along. If I endure this, if the trick works, I go back to heaven and I can tell my Father that we have attained the earth. We have reestablished our dominion there. We have taken it from the evil one. We have taken it from those little mudbloods running around full of sin and wickedness who hate us. We've conquered it. That's what he's looking forward to. Their monumental folly is thinking they could kill him because he's just a man. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. See that word there? Paul is using very Roman culture, a lot of Roman culture here. He says he triumphed over them. So when you attain a triumph, and they call it, you get a triumphal procession. In Rome, if you, if you, right, not every victory is a triumph. Serious, like the real big ones, are considered a triumph. It's, a, it's an actual technical term. And that always gets you a triumphal procession. Jesus attained his triumphal procession. He wanted to be the guy from Daniel's vision. Now, Let's talk about this tension. Let's talk about this tension. Paul
Paul elsewhere makes plain that the cross is not the last chapter in the warfare against the powers of this age, even though all that was necessary to defeat them was accomplished. Because again, I mean, I say all of this stuff of this martial language, Jesus is on the throne, this palace in heaven, this where he pours his own blood, it's magnificent. So why do I go out here and yell at my kids? Why do I totally lose my temper with them? If Jesus is king, why doesn't he just stop me from doing this? Well, see, there's a couple of different things here. One of them is this idea, it, it, you know, warfare isn't something most people study. Uh, but there's kind of different ways of doing it. Um, one way, right, if you have very noble people, right, is like the boxing method. Uh, you punch people, you punch, you punch, and then the guy falls down and you stand there. You're like, okay, I'm going to be a gentleman let him get up. Then there's the MMA style of warfare, where the guy goes down and that doesn't stop you. You keep punching him until he either goes on conscience or someone pulls you off. And there is a kind of warfare in where you press the advantage and press the advantage and press the advantage. And uh, Stonewall Jackson was such a great um, commander during the Civil War because he studied the battles in the Bible. And there were times where they held off in a victory, and there were times where God says, don't stop now, you've got them on the run. Go get them. And, and you see this sometimes in movies. Have you ever seen this? Like uh, Braveheart, I think, has one of these scenes where they've won. And, and they're like, okay, so the king is like, all right, I'm going to go back to the tent now. Uh, but send in all the rest of our troops and just make sure nobody survives. And, and there is a sense where, like, the victory is accomplished, but he sends in all the reserve troops to, ju- to just absolutely, completely leave no doubt. And in one sense, that is what God is doing with us. He's done everything he needs to win. And he wants us to go out and he wants us to live our lives the way he did. Right? This is what I said earlier. He didn't go through all this to, to prevent us from having to do it. We're do, we have to go out and we have to die to ourselves and, and live the way of the cross in order to gain a crown. But there is another sense in where he's sending us out to mop up. He's like, well, I'm going to go back to my father now. Looks like I've handled everything here. Uh, so go take care of the rest of business. But in your own life, you're like, man, why is this war so overwhelming? Right? So imagine they send in the reserve troops and one of them dies. Does that mean they didn't win the battle? Right? Or, or on the right flank, they get kind of pushed back a little bit, and then the left flank has to help them out. Does that mean they didn't win the battle? Now, go back to chapter 4 of Ephesians for a second. And, and, and this, right? Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he goes on, and he explains the evangelists, the, right? These are the gifts. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, he says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He wants you to finish what he started. He's done everything he needs to do for you to put on the armor of God and to go finish the job. Right? The whole earth is his. So, right? So right? then he sends the church out and, and every generation, we get a little further. Right? The church covers a little more of the earth and a little more of the earth. And we bring in a few more tribes and a few more families. And we, we're creeping along. And for us, we're like, this war is never going to end. He's already, he's victorious and he's already sitting down. Right? Because time for him is different than us. For him, he's like, yeah, this is going really well. <laughs> he's looking down from heaven and I was like, all right, this is, all right, guys. Woo! Get him. And that's a very different way of thinking about the Christian life. 
It's a very different way. Now, the imagery of the armor comes from the book of Isaiah. It, he's given us his armor. When David goes to fight Goliath, Saul puts his armor on David. The king puts his armor on the one who's going to go and destroy uh, the giant on behalf of Israel. And that's what God, right? Jesus doesn't need the armor anymore because he's sitting in heaven. He says, here, put on my armor. And the imagery comes from the book of Isaiah in chapters 11 and 52 and 59. We war against the devil's lies and accusations with the truth of the gospel. We fight the fight of faith um, until the cross brings us peace. Our salvation is secure and the Lord is our righteousness. And that does not mean that we don't have to go out and fight the way he fought. It means we're going to win. That, that's what we need to understand as Christians. You, you're not avoiding a fight against sin or Satan or death. <laughs> you still have to fight it, but you're going to win now. And it never feels that way in the midst of it, does it? And so we get all confused in our mind about who the king is and where he is and what he's doing. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 26. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So if the very last enemy is death, there are a lot of other enemies we have to kill before then, isn't there? There's a lot of other conquering to be done. If the last one is death, well, I mean, well, we got cancer we got to beat, we got starvation we got to beat, we got thirst that we got to beat, right? We got polio. Oh, no, we don't have to worry about that one as much anymore, do we? Hmm. Progress. <laughs> I love postmillennialism. Refrigeration proves postmillennialism to me, right? We've reversed the effects of death because we can take the dead cow and stick it in a freezer, and three months later, the steak tastes just as good. You're like, how do you like that, death? I'm going to buy me another dead cow. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And, and that's not the way everyone understood it from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he defeats all the enemies at once, and then they have a party, and then the party just goes on forever. What nobody was expecting and what we're not super comfortable with is that he comes and he pretty much oversees the war until, okay, yeah, we've won. Okay, guys, finish this up. I'm going to go and sit down at the right hand of the Father, and I'll send you whatever you need. You need anything. I got it all. That, right, we're just as uncomfortable with that as the Pharisees standing there going, what do you mean this is the Messiah? He never works the way that we want him to. He works the way that's good for us. Now, here, here's, here's what I'm going to... This is, this is why the ascension is so important and, and, and this whole thing. Listen how Paul describes his own Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Hold the phone. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul considered his, right, following Jesus. I am following Jesus. There I am, one of the enemies he's defeated, who he's now taken into heaven as a slave. And oh, because he's not like the rest of us, the slaves become sons. So following Jesus isn't just, <laughs> like, like the disciples are following, they're like picking grain while they're going. They're like, hey, Jesus, let's go fishing. 
right? We, we get this idea of that. Like, they're just kind of following him around. He's a little quirky. Weird stuff happens. But no, the, the following him that, we, that we're doing is the processional, the triumphal processional. Because I love all of you, but we are not the plunder. He, he bound the strong man and plundered his house. And we like to think we're the plunder. But the plunder is the cascades. The plunder is the amber waves of grain. The plunder is the big bin. The plunder is Chardonnay. Right? That's, that's the plunder. All the rich wealth of this world and the kingdoms are his. And he distributes them. The enemy that he defeated is you. The enemy that he defeated is me. We are the ones in the triumphal procession that he brings and says, look, Father, I have conquered them. The army that was opposed to us, I have defeated them and their leader. And for us, we're like, whoa. <laughs> no, I'm the, I'm the plunder, man. I'm the treasure you got. It's going to make heaven even better that I'm here. No, but you were the enemy. He defeated you. He made you his slave. And because he's not like you or me, he made you his son. Now, that's how Paul understood it. Now, that gives, <laughs> that makes Ascension Day a completely different thing, doesn't it? Because in our minds, we should constantly be thinking of our own Christian life in this way. He ascends to heaven, the victorious general who has defeated the enemies, and he brings them with him to show his father what he's accomplished, and that's how we get into heaven. The way of the cross led to the crown of Christ. The path of Christ's exaltation resulted in the heightened glorification of his body. But Jesus did not go alone. He did not go alone. He took you with him. And, and that's why you're there. It's because of this triumphal procession. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who, who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when he was crucified, you were crucified. But that's not it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. But God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When he was crucified, you were crucified. When he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. When he ascended into heaven, you were ascended into heaven. When he sat down at the right hand of the power on high, you sat down on the right hand of the power on high. That is who you are. That is your identity. And if we only understood it just a little bit, like he did, right? What, right? what do I got to deal with? I got to deal with lepers? Well, you guys know, you know, I'm going in clouds. I'm going in clouds back to the Father to receive a crown. You know that? I'll, I'll heal this guy. It's no problem. Everything he does, he's always thinking about going back to the Father, going back to the Father. It's the greatest good he can think of, and look at all the good he did on this earth. See, C.S. Lewis summarizes it this way for us. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And all too, right? What are we? We look at our present circumstances, can't avoid it. Right? Let's get to work on this earth. This earth needs a, man, I got to clean and scrub and fight and yell and petition and burn 
and carry firearms in public. I don't, I don't really know what statement that makes. We've got to do all these things. We've got to show them. We've got to show them who our authority is. And precisely because we're so focused on earth, you lose both. Right? But when he was crucified, you were crucified. When he ascended, you ascended. When he sat down to the right hand of the power, you did. There you are, the processional, <laughs> triumphal, triumphant processional. The slaves become the sons of God. Why would we turn anywhere else? Now, okay. All right. Sorry, I don't want to be too hostile here, but I don't have a problem with running every play in the playbook. That's how I, right? If we got to do a petition, fine. If, if carrying firearms in public reminds people that we can, okay, fine. But it gets really hard looking around. What are we all focused on? It was exactly those Christians who thought more of heaven that did the most for earth. And not their palace in heaven. I don't think there's any problem with people thinking too much of that. Right? There's, there's a lot of that going on. Oh, heaven? Well, that's where I get to go when this horrible place is over. But it's exactly because he's there at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and has all authority, all the glory, all the good. He is the one everybody bows down to precisely because he knew that was coming. He was able to accomplish a great deal. And we don't have to, right? It's already accomplished for us. And so therefore, we should go forth into this world and we should do a great deal of good in it because we're never really thinking of it primarily. And that's a paradox. But welcome to the, welcome to the Christian faith. It's full of paradoxes. Right? I, I'm already victorious in Christ, and yet I've gotta, I'm going to go sin later this afternoon, and I'll have to repent. I'm going to have to die at some point, and this body will have to give up its spirit. But I know what's already been accomplished on my behalf, and I know where I'm going, and I know where I am now. And that's the difference maker. It's not this future thing. It's now. You're in Christ, and where is he? You're in Christ, and what is he doing? You're in Christ, and what has he accomplished? And, and I pray that all of us would go forth from here and remember and, and think on it. Have this mind among yourselves. He was humiliated, therefore he was exalted. And if, right, and if you hook your wagon to this horse, the same is going to happen to you. Not your way, but his. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for everything he accomplished on our behalf. We pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would not fight our battles our way, that we would not fight our enemies our way, uh, that we would not be so focused on this earth that we forget heaven, we, that we forget who is sitting at your right hand and, and what our relationship to him is. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for drawing us into him, saving us in him, uniting us to him. We pray, God, that as we go from here, that would be our identity, that you would remind us again and again and again because we will forget. We pray, God, that you would keep our minds on heaven that we might do something for this earth. We pray, Lord God, that you would grab hold of our attention and that you would not let it go. We thank you and we praise you and amen.